Tara Lan is a senior associate with the International Institute for Sustainable Development's Energy Program. She leads the Institute's energy taxation work and has over 14 years experience on energy subsidy reform. Before joining IISD, Tara held several positions in the Australian government, including senior advisor for trade policy in the prime minister's department and advisor on natural resource management and environmental conservation issues. She is the lead author of the new report that sounds a little bit scary, Fanning the Flames. G20 provides record financial support for fossil fuels, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Tara, welcome to Europe. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. A pleasure. I've just read a very startling article that outlined how four major oil companies, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, Exxon and Shell, reported record profits last year, totaling more than $1 trillion. Meanwhile, we went through and are still going through quite a nightmarish summer being battered by the effects of the climate crisis on every corner. The popular phrase on social media now is, I believe, this is going to be the coldest summer for the rest of your lives. Why on earth are our governments providing financial support for an industry that is not just wreaking havoc on the environment and our lives now, but also bringing in record profits already on its own without any help. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really good question. I think it's even worse than you you say. I mean, four companies made a trillion dollars worth of profits, but if you look across the whole oil and gas industry, I think profits were around four trillion last year for the oil and gas majors and and national oil companies. So you know, vast vast profits. That's just profits in one year. At the same time, you know, governments were shelling out for consumer subsidies, and you know, we're facing the climate crisis. So to answer the question, you've got to look at the history of why governments put these measures in place. And in the case of producer subsidies, uh, they, you know, looking for oil and gas and coal used to be a risky proposition. You didn't know what you'd find. It was expensive to go looking. You know, then you've got to have a lot of infrastructure to mine or or develop uh, wells and so on. And so government said, well, this is very risky for you. We'll try and reduce those risks with some subsidies, tax support and so on. So that's why they put them in place. And, and why do they want to have a domestic fossil fuel industry? Well, it's, I guess, it's jobs, it's, you know, energy security, it's energy supply. It might reduce costs if you can convince those companies to provide amount, you know, at a, at a low price to the domestic market. So lots of good reasons why these policies were put in place. But the situation has changed dramatically. As you say, prices are now very high, so that reduces a lot of that risk and they're likely to stay high. But also our you know, technology is a lot better. It's a lot less risky to go hunting for fossil fuels because you know what the reserves are likely to be. We can sense what's under the ground, basically. But the biggest thing that's changed and the, real, the main issue at the moment is that we know there should be no new oil, gas or coal if we are to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius increase as a global average. So we know that there's no new room for, there's no room for new oil and gas or coal. So governments subsidizing this is completely crazy and at odds with their climate commitments. By the way, how do these fuel subsidies actually work? So governments just take money from our taxes and pump them straight into these oil giants, or is it a bit more complicated than that? A little bit more complicated. There's a couple of ways to think about it. One way is to separate out consumption subsidies from production subsidies. So consumption subsidies reduce, obviously, the cost of using fossil fuels. 
And one of the biggest ones uh, that we see is uh, what we call price support. And that is when a government, say like Saudi Arabia, might sell, it might sell petrol or gasoline at, say, 60 cents a litre, which might be its cost of supply for that country. Say the international market price is like a dollar a litre, the government is foregoing that revenue. It's selling it more cheaply than it could get on the open market. So it is giving the local consumers a benefit that wouldn't be available, you know, if they were, you know, from other countries. So that's that's a big form of support, you know, that's by a lot, done by a lot of countries. And we also see a lot of consumer support through, say, more wealthy countries giving transfers or tax breaks for consumers, you know, to reduce their heating costs, to reduce their, you know, gasoline or diesel bills, particularly during the energy crisis, and, and and also for industry, right? You have low costs of, you know, coal-fired electricity to hope to promote, you know, industrial development. So there's, there's the consumer side. On the producer side, these are subsidies that reduce the cost of supplying fossil fuels, and it's often focused on um, the early stages of exploration and development. So these are subsidies like tax breaks, it means that a company can, say, not pay any tax on the oil and gas it's producing because it's investing in new supply. And this is really problematic because it means that in order to avoid paying tax, you keep supplying fossil fuels. And, you know, it means that the government's missing out on current tax revenue, but it's also locking us into future supply. So that's the big problem with um, producer tax subsidies and, well, producer subsidies generally. Do we know exactly how this, where this money is going and how is it being spent Yeah, or it, not? That, or does it get murky once they, It gets you know, super murky. Uh, I mean, it, I think... Okay, great yeah, news. Yeah, well, with producer subsidies, the difficulty is that when you, once you start getting into how much a company is paying in tax and, and how many, and, you know, it's, and it's tax deductions... You really have to know what its tax would have otherwise been. And so you've got to know its turnover and its profits and, you know, all the details of its financial arrangements in order to then know what tax cuts it's drawing from. I mean, governments could choose to make this more transparent and companies could too, but they don't really want to. So this is one of our big jobs is to try and get more transparency in this area so we know exactly what it's costing budgets and the benefits that are flowing to producers and their effects. All right. One of the main arguments of subsidies from the consumer side, uh, like you said, is that they keep our energy bills kind of stable and low, right? What would happen to our bills if we suddenly stopped subsidizing fossil fuel? Well, I think it depends where you live. But for most of us, it would make absolutely no difference. Like, Really? Well, I mean, look... It depends who you are and where you are. I mean, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised, yeah. given the, the industry that we're discussing. But I didn't know it would be such a straightforward answer. No, no, no. I haven't. I, I, that was just the beginning of the answer. I think for people like me that are living in Australia in a country where you have mostly deregulated markets, you know, and I'm not in a category that gets you know, targeted support, it wouldn't make a big difference for me. And, and for many consumers, you know, you wouldn't notice if some of these subsidies were removed. So that's the first thing. It's not going to be the end of the world. If you are living in, say, a developing country where the government has been suppressing prices, then you'll notice that your fuel prices will go up. And this is, of course, not a huge problem for the wealthy, but for the poor who use less fuel generally, but that support they're getting is really important, right? You know, you might only be using a tiny amount of, of kerosene, for example, to light your, you know, light your lamps. 
But if that price goes up, it's going to you know, be very, very difficult, difficult for you. So the critical point is what the government does with the savings. And lots of modelling has shown that if you remove fossil fuel subsidies and you put it into either targeted social welfare or any kind of productive use in the economy, something that's going to create jobs, something that's going to you know, build infrastructure, that's going to improve the economy, even um, education or health support, all those things grow the economy. And the modelling just invariably shows that countries are better off and people are better off because fossil fuel subsidies are really economically inefficient and there are just so many better ways to spend government money. But the other side keeps bringing this argument forward, right? For everybody in Europe, I'm, I'm from Europe, they keep saying, yeah, your energy bills are going to skyrocket if we stop subsidies, if we stop drilling for new oil. In the States, I've heard that. Uh, I've, I'm a news junkie. I follow a lot of the news. And they keep banging on about your energy bills are going to get sky high if we stop subsidizing. Da, 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 da. And it seems at least somewhat effective, this tactic. People are really, people are really scared. Mm. And rightly so, because, you know, cost of, of life is, is going up as it is. I think it is a scare tactic and I think it is used by, you know, people who support the fossil fuel industry. What it fails to recognise is that, one, as I said, governments can use subsidies for better purposes. And so, you know, if you're worried about your fuel bills going up, you know, you could be given that cash instead. So if, you know, you're currently receiving, I don't know, $1,000 a year in benefits from cheap fuel, if you then receive that $1,000 in your hand instead, I can't see how you could possibly say you're worse off. You know, the, the, you're, you're going to be better off because you can choose what to spend that money on. And if you want to spend it all on fuel, go right ahead. So I think, as I said, it's really important to recognise that governments have these fossil fuel savings. And I think it's also really important to recognise that we now have cheap renewable energy. So maybe in the past, if fossil fuels were the total sum game, um, and you reduce supply, then yes, prices will go up. But now we've got, you know, the levelised cost of renewable energy has come right down so far that we have alternatives, right? And we can electrify transport, we can electrify industry, and there are ways to keep energy prices low, but we have to invest in them. And again, you can use subsidy savings for those investments and to increase um, clean energy supply. Okay, we, if we stay with that topic, and if we're being a bit more precise, if we shifted some or all of that subsidy money elsewhere, what could we do with it in terms of a green transition? Yeah, so coming back to the um, Fanning the Flames report that we're releasing shortly, what we found is that the G20 spent $1.4 trillion on subsidies in 2022 and could raise another trillion from minimum levels of carbon tax. So we're talking $2.4 trillion in 2022 alone. Now, Okay, I'm sorry, I have to stop you here. What is a carbon tax? Because okay. I'm still confused. Yeah. I read about it, but I still don't get it. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, can you explain carbon tax for dummies? Okay. Well, maybe the best thing to do is with an analogy, right? What governments have done in many countries in the world has been to tax cigarettes because of the negative effect on, on people's health, right? So cigarettes um, you know, normally might be sold for $5 a packet or something like that. They were just left to the market price. But governments put in place taxes to increase those prices up to, you know, I don't even know what they are, but, you know, we're talking 20, 20 or so dollars, you know, so quite big taxes. And that has two effects. One is that it encourages people to stop smoking. 
Two, it encourages you know, cigarette manufacturers to manufacture less because yeah, they've got to sell it for a very high price instead of being able to sell it sort of cheaply. And the taxes go to the government, don't go to profits for the, the companies. And the other big effect is revenue. So then the government is receiving revenue, which you can use to pay for some of those health costs, you know, hospitalizations, reduced productivity. Okay. Great analogy. Yeah. Yep. So carbon taxes are just the same. I mean, carbon has a cost to society in the form of climate change. So what we're doing is adding a premium, a tax on top of, you know, anything that contains carbon. And the idea is to get investors and energy consumers to switch to clean alternatives just with that price signal and also raise revenue that can be used to ameliorate some of these impacts of climate change, but also to maybe um, support clean energy transition. I mean, I'm just slightly speechless uh, given the summer that we've just had climate change. Climate breakdown is finally here. I should address it more appropriately. You have some insight into this. I mean, a lot of insight. Why are governments doing this? What's happening? I think politically it is very challenging to change. So that really is what it comes down to. I think we know what we need to do. You know, we have the technologies to address. We've known for a couple of decades now. Oh, exactly, exactly, right? yeah. As I said, I mean, the G20 first committed, I don't know if I said this, but the G20 first committed to remove fossil fuel subsidies back in 2009. And we thought at the time, well, that's a breakthrough, brilliant. And here we are seeing record high you know, fossil fuel subsidies now. So there will always be an excuse to provide these subsidies. And the energy crisis is the latest excuse. The energy crisis has meant that governments have said, well, we've got to support our consumers by keeping prices low, by capping these, these peaking prices. And also the energy crisis was born because of you know, the Russia's in, invasion of Ukraine. And so governments are also saying we need to shore up our domestic supplies. So we need to, you know, uh, increase coal production, we need to introduce increased domestic gas and oil production because we can't be um, beholden to the international market or particularly certain suppliers. And my response to that is that fossil fuels will always be a volatile source of energy, right? They'll always be price volatile. They'll always be geopolitically risky if you look at you know, some of the big sources of supply. So let's get away from them. You know, let the energy crisis be the last time we go through this because it wasn't the first energy crisis and it won't be the last. But what we need to do is say renewables provide a relatively price-stable source of energy and we can move across to that and move away from this whole system of fossil fuels. It's not just the pollution, it's the, it's the political risk, it's the economic risk, and we can, we can just get away from it. And it's time to, to do that now. Yeah, I just don't get it because the math probably doesn't add up anymore. I mean, this year we had expansive worst wildfires in Canada, I, I think, in history, the biggest surface wildfires. And then we had boiling oceans and we had deadly heat waves in Southern Europe. Like when when is the state going to recognize that the risks outweigh the so-called benefits and the guaranteed money that's trickling in? Look, I, I don't know. I mean, I find it absolutely flabbergasting. I mean, I, I was sort of learning about climate change when I was in high school and, you know, I'm no longer in high school <laughs> and it's, you know, it's been a long time and I just can't see what else it will take to get governments to act. I mean, I have seen a huge shift in the debate, which is fantastic. You know, climate change has gone from being, oh, this is something, might, this is something that might happen in the future. It's, you know, 
maybe mentioned in scientific journals and and so on. But now it's front page news, right? And it, it is, you know, commanding the attention of world leaders and it is deciding elections in some countries. So there has been a big shift. And of course, we've seen in the debate. In the debate. And we've also seen renewable energy prices come down. So that's fantastic. But we are not seeing enough. And I think that this example of support to fossil fuels from governments is the bit that I find the most challenging. I can understand that it's hard to turn, you know, a shipping tanker around in a hurry. But when our governments are making commitments to, you know, keep within 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius temperature increases to align public financial flows with low carbon scenarios, and that's just not happening, I, I just I, I don't find the excuses good enough anymore, you know. They... They really need to put their money where their mouth is and, you know, actually implement these policies. And we can do it. We, we know that there are the technologies out there that can provide energy. We don't need, we're not waiting for any big breakthroughs, you know. We could shift these public financial resources across to clean energy and start to see much more rapid change. Right. I like the analogy of the tanker. You know, you can't move it fast enough, but it's been 30 freaking years. You know, I was in, like, like you said, I was in the first grade of elementary school. The country was still Yugoslavia, a country that doesn't exist anymore. And we had a subject called nature. And I remember very clearly that they were already teaching us about the greenhouse effect. And that was 31 years ago. I'm now a 38-year-old man, and here we are. It's really, I don't know, I'm, I'm running out of adjectives, to be, to be honest, bad adjectives. A large part of the scientific community is claiming that politics has been completely hijacked by the fossil fuel industry. What do you think of that assessment? Um, I'd have to 100% agree. I mean, if you look at Australia, both of our major political parties fully support new coal, oil and gas development in Australia. And we're seeing new coal mines approved, you know, every every couple of months. Uh, and they're Jesus. huge ones, huge coal mines, you know. And, you know, it's kind of the politics, though, has become a bit ridiculous because in Australia we have a government that's supposedly pro-climate change, doing something about it, and we have, uh, you know, actions to reduce uh, Australia's domestic emissions, and yet we're still exporting massive amounts of, of you know, gas and, and coal. It's, it's, I'm sorry, but this is getting... Uh, it's quite, absurd. This is, sounds quite ridiculous. Quite ri you know that movie, Don't Look Up, with Leonardo DiCaprio? No. Ah, okay. It's about an asteroid is coming. It's an analogy for climate change. Right. And the media just keeps going on with like celebrity scandals and all that stuff while the, you know, the asteroid is coming closer and closer. And the scientists are like, hey, guys, maybe we should focus on, on this thing up in the sky that we can see with our naked eye now. But people just keep going on. And it feels like we're already there, that we're living in this absurd scenario. It is completely absurd. And it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Yeah, as a person who's also worked on, you know, environmental conservation and, you know, I've got an ecology degree, you know, we talk a lot about climate change affecting humans, but there's just, you know, there's obviously such huge impacts on the natural world as well. All of our ecosystems are already pushed to the brink because of, you know, habitat loss and so on, and then pushed even further. So, you know, we're in the middle of a mass extinction event. And again, people are, you know, just wanting to ignore it and move on and, and live their lives. I think because the, the problems are so vast that it, it is overwhelming. And, you know, I admit, you know, I feel, I feel overwhelmed by it too. But as I say, I think the solutions are there. And that, that's the bit that is really important to remember, that people are now aware of the issues and they are aware, it's almost a cliche, that we, we, we have the solutions. 
We don't need anything new. We just need to actually do it. And it is about political will and it's about people, you know, maybe being willing to make those kind of sacrifices themselves that, you know, and, and make climate change the priority when they vote, not maybe a tax cut or, or something that might affect their hip pocket directly, which, you know, it's valid as well. And I think increasingly, though, people are, you know, realising that they, they need to put climate change at the top of the list. The Fanning the Flames report that you authored found that G20 countries provided a record 1.4 trillion, right, of, of US dollars of public money to support fossil fuels last year. Which countries are the worst offenders and which countries are actually improving in this regard, if any? So, I mean, I, I'd say that the biggest subsidies, as I mentioned, are price support. So countries that keep the retail cost of fuels below. So the consumer side. Exactly, right? on the consumer side. So big consumer subsidies, we're seeing that they're much higher, especially in 2022, than the producer side. And I mean, the biggest subsidies are from countries like uh, Russia and China and Saudi Arabia. So, you know, in the case of Russia and Saudi Arabia, they're big producing, you know, oil and gas producing countries, and they just keep the domestic price very, very low, which results in, in, in large subsidies. And also tax, you know, tax breaks and so on in Russia and, and in Saudi as well. So these are some of the biggest offenders. In terms of improvement, I think India is a really good example. So India provided tax breaks for gasoline and diesel for many, many years, uh, up to about 2014. And then it removed those tax breaks. And as a result, its fossil fuel subsidies have reduced by about 75% to 2022. And that's a, that's a huge achievement. And they did this partly just through having an agenda of economic reform, but partly because citizens could see that the government was providing other benefits like universal electricity access was, was uh, happening during that period of time. There were subsidies for clean cooking, for example, which, you know, are problematic as well in their own way. But, you know, people could see that they were getting, that those who needed support were getting some. So, you know, there, there are sort of signs of progress. I think also what we need to do is recognise that for a lot of developing countries, I'm not talking about sort of, you know, upper middle income or, you know, sort of middle income. I'm talking really poor countries. They have very few other mechanisms to provide support to their people. They don't have tax systems, uh, complex tax systems. They don't have social welfare systems. And so one easy way to provide you know, economic support is to reduce the prices of energy. And as I said, it's a very inefficient way to do it because the ones who consume the most get the most benefits. But I think what those what those um, countries need to do is put in place social welfare mechanisms, cash transfers, and we've seen that that's possible. Like Indonesia did it, Ghana, and and several several countries have managed to put in place these social welfare systems and fund it through fossil fuel subsidy savings. It seems that during a lot of these global climate change summits. One thing that's consistently an issue is that the rich developed nations that have historically pumped the most CO2 into the atmosphere are reluctant or don't want to provide enough support for developing countries, right? Which seems really unfair. What What do you think of that? Yeah, so I think there was a commitment, I think it was part of the Paris Agreement for rich countries to provide $100 billion in um, clean energy financing per year, or climate change financing, sorry, per year to developing countries. 
And they are getting close to that target. I think it's about 17 billion off at the moment. So, but that target was meant to be met years ago and it's still only, it still hasn't really been met now. So you're right. It's, it's, it, it hasn't been sufficient and it's, it's completely at odds with climate justice, as you say, that these, you know, many countries yep. are suffering the effects and they're not the cause of climate change. So this is what's very frustrating about the G20, right? They are really, you know, relatively wealthy countries. I mean, even the emerging economies are wealthy compared to many you know, least developed countries and, and developing economies. They need to be the ones that act, um, particularly the, the developed country members, and we're just not seeing it. So I think in, in 2023, international public financing for fossil fuels was around $50 billion and international public financing for clean energy was around $13 billion. So that's 2021 numbers. Anyway, point being, governments are still providing funding more for fossil fuels than for clean energy. So if they wanted to, these governments could be funding renewable energy development in developing countries. They have you know, they have that ability, they have the funds available. So what we need to, again, to see again is a switch across to more funding for clean energy. The United Nations Climate Change Conference 28 or COP28 is approaching soon. I think it's in November, right? Yeah. I don't know, maybe. End of November. And it's, yeah, it's already ripe with many controversies. It just came out that the United Arab Emirates, the host nation, failed to report its methane emissions, which is really basic stuff. They have also announced that they are ramping up oil production. Sounds, yeah, quite mad. Furthermore, none of the past 27 COPs have been able to even mention fossil fuels yet. So the only global cooperative body that's supposed to take us out of this cataclysmic predicament can't even bring itself to name the one thing it has to decouple us from. Are these summits just a farce at this point? The challenge is that I mean, I can see the frustration and I'm not a person who's hugely enamoured with these international processes. That's not really my field. But, I mean, climate change is a global issue, right? So there, it does need global cooperation to deal with it. Whether or not those mechanisms are working, um, evidently not. Uh, uh, and I also think that reform needs to happen at the domestic level. So, you know, from my experience at, back at Prime Minister and Cabinet in Australia, you know, the only reforms that ever go through is when the consumers, not consumers, sorry, citizens believe that the reform is in their best interest and international people don't vote, right? So the decision makers are only listening to their domestic, you know, clientele. Right. And yeah. therefore it's at that level that change happens. So there are some benefits though for international processes and that is to sort of increase the level of ambition, to kind of shame countries into acting. Um, you know, if everyone else is sort of saying they're going to do something, then, you know, then there's more pressure for every, for other countries to also say they need to do something. The trouble comes exactly what I just said. They say they're going to do something. And we're just seeing this huge implementation gap. You know, countries have committed to stuff, but their policies, domestic policies, just aren't aligned with their international commitments, which makes those things a farce, as you say. I mean, to have the G20 say in 2009 that it's going to end inefficient fossil fuel subsidies and have record high subsidies 14 years later, it just shows that these international commitments of dubious value 
But to say that they should be, um, you know, that they're not worth attending, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think we have to keep trying. Right. I just read that most of the people attending are actually lobbyists for big oil. Really? I mean, isn't that pretty insane? Now, for the first time, I think they will have to identify themselves as such which is just mad because we had 28 of these summits mm. in 30 years and they've just now figured this this uh, this out. And yeah, I hosted a renowned professor of climate hazards, Professor Bill McGuire, who just released a book called Hot House Earth. It's a, it's a really scary read. He was part of one of these cops and he was just so supremely disappointed. He said he's not putting any hope into into these summits anymore because like you said uh, everybody talks the talk but that's where it kind of stays look i i think it's difficult for environmental organizations because it has become a bit of a trade fair where you go along and you explain what you do and so if you're not present there and you're not explaining to donors or you're not being seen and showing what you are what your efforts are then you know there's a bit of a question mark about maybe you know what what your what your um your, your levels of engagement right in terms of the meeting itself then yeah I I think yeah, you've just got to look at the record just got to look at the record of, of you know what's been achieved yeah yeah I'm, I've been following COP twenty eight on social media and it's such a nice lovely campaign that they're putting on you know like the president of the summit is meeting with indigenous leaders and then he's meeting with youth climate activists and he's doing all the right things. But there's not a word of about fossil fuels or about like ending fossil fuels. Mm. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's bizarre to watch. Fossil fuel subsidies aren't even on the agenda for the G20, you know, despite them being record high at the moment. So you can understand why they don't want to talk about it. But the fact that they're getting away with not talking about it is, I think, the the big the big worry. A study from Barcelona's Institute for Global Health has found that more than sixty one thousand Europeans died in Europe last summer as a result of extreme heat. What's the best way for us ordinary folks, ordinary citizens to exert pressure on our governments to stop subsidizing the industry that's now literally killing us? Mm. Well, unfortunately, the the stats are even worse because if you look at deaths due to air pollution, I think that uh, a recent study by Harvard found that one in five deaths globally is due to fossil fuel pollution, due to particulate matter causing heart disease and lung disease. So absolute, really? Yeah, yeah, huge. Absolutely. Oh my god. So 20% of deaths yep. are related to air pollution. Yes. Fantastic. I live near the airport now. <laughs> this is great news. Time to start wearing a mask and getting a filter in your house. Okay, does that work? Oh, I don't know. I think the filters are supposed to work. I mean, you know, if you What, what kind of filter, sorry? This oh, is now know, those, of, um, of personal concern. The air filters that go in your room. And mm-hmm. they, um, they, they, they filter out a lot of the pollution. Like people in, living in cities like Delhi and, and Jakarta, it's quite common to have a, a filter in your room that just cleanses the air, runs constantly, and you know, does make a big difference apparently. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't know. Okay, I'll look into it. I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, so I'm definitely looking into that. Yeah, yeah. No, it has to be a good one, but I think they do work. I know people in um, Delhi in particular have got okay. colleagues that work there, and uh, they say that during the, the burning off season when the pollution's really bad, that you really have to have a filter to, you know, right. make you Sorry, I interrupted you with my neurosis. Uh, oh, no, that's go okay. Ahead. Go ahead. Um, I can't remember what I was talking about. Uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was asking you, what's the best way for us ordinary folks oh. to kind of yeah, exert pressure on our governments? What do, you, what do you think? Well, I mean, obviously voting is the biggest thing, you know, how you vote. 
But also I always support organisations that are doing things that I would like to do myself. So, I mean, I work on fossil fuel subsidies globally and that's, you know, you know where I make, where I try and have an impact. But in Australia, I fund several environmental organisations that are doing that lobbying directly. So um, there's organisations that, you know, basically lobbying governments to change, change these policies. And if you can't be doing that yourself, you know, you're like, oh, I'm busy, I've got a job and I've got my life. If you just spend, you know, a certain amount of money a month, it doesn't have to be huge. But if you directly support those organisations that are doing the lobbying for you, then, I mean, you know, it's a win-win situation. And also, I think you've got to vote, you've got to send that market signal, not so much about fossil fuel subsidies, but to the private sector. If you say, I'm going to buy an electric car, or I'm going to take the train instead of driving or whatever, if you just, in everything that you do, you send a market signal that you are rejecting fossil fuels or you're rejecting pollution, um, it does does make a difference. I mean, you know, what will change in this world is when the profit-making apparatus changes, you know, when people stop making profits from fossil fuels and, you know, clean energy becomes, you know, a, a force that can then take on the fossil fuel industry. So it's important to support that transition just in all our choices. Mm. Professor McGuire said that, yeah, he's doing all of those things. He has an electric car, solar panels on his house, all of that stuff. But he said that now it's, it's time for climate activism. What do you mm. think of, of that? Oh, I mean, it was probably time for that 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough. But I think right. um, I think personal choice now will have limited impacts and really it's governments that need to make those decisions now and governments are the ones that have the big levers in their hands like regulations, like taxation and uh, that, that really, it really sits with them now. I think individuals, we can... Uh, try and push our governments to make these better policy choices. But in terms of, you know, choosing, well, I think you've got to send the market signal, but really you're trying to push for big changes, you know, at the at the governmental level. Like we said, this summer has been absolutely brutal, killer heat waves, flash flooding, record temperatures all around. Half of my home country of Slovenia was submerged during the worst floods in recent memory, floods that have cost lives. The scenes were brutal and quite heartbreaking. And you always think, I think a lot of us, or maybe human psychology works in a way like, oh, it's not, I'm safe where I am. You know, you always read about it in the news and it's some other country. But then when it hits you, it's still a shock, even though everybody's been talking about climate crisis for a long time. However, yeah, Slovenia is far from an isolated case. The climate crisis is like here now. And like we said, there's no place to hide anymore. Would you say that the attitudes of our governments are reflecting that in any sort of way? Are there some efforts to address this crisis going on in in, in some room in the background that we're not seeing? Or is it still just like more of the same? Because that's what it seems like. And our conversation so far makes me think that, unfortunately, this is what it really is. Mm. You know, you always hope that your leaders have some sort of contingency plan for things go uh, really wrong and they've thought about it in advance and you know they have some secret secret room where they just gather and they're like okay this is getting serious now we're going to do this and this it's a bit of a comic book reassuring uh, image but i think a lot of us are like okay you know somebody's got to think about this anyway sorry I'm yeah look from my experience working in government and i wasn't at the political level i was at the you know public service level but you know 
advising government and seeing how it works. And then when people say, oh, you know, COVID is a conspiracy by the government or whatever, I think you should go and work in government because you'd realise that, that it just it doesn't have the capacity to pull off, you know, a conspiracy of the, on that scale, you know. <laughs> so the idea that there's a back room where people know exactly what's going on and have a plan, I think is is unfortunately, you know, a, a nice bedtime story you can tell yourself maybe at the end of a long day. But uh, the reality is that I think that governments are just responding, you know, day by day to things that come up and they are just hoping to get re-elected and therein lies the problem, that it's, it's, it's a lot of short-termism. These long-term issues like climate change are, you know, probably going to really bite on someone else's watch. And if they do bite on your watch, you can say, oh, well, you know, like we've put some money into this or so we've put some money into that and it's, you know, just these, these as you say, it's a bit like greenwashing. So I, I think... As I mentioned before, there has been a lot of change and now we are seeing a lot of serious politicians really putting a lot of effort into this. It's often the independents, it's often the minor parties, I mean, in Australia anyway, and then, you know, some pretty major parties in, in, in Europe and, and doing fantastic things in terms of carbon taxes and, you know, the emissions trading system and, and you know, and support for renewable energy. So we have seen some, you know, really good results from certain countries. The trouble is... On a global scale, it is just too little and it's possibly too late. I mean, the chances of us actually keeping global temperatures to below 1.5 degrees Celsius are getting very, very slim, particularly the trajectory we're going on at the moment. So we really need all countries, not just a few, to actually start you know, doing the right thing or, or to increase their level of ambition. Yeah, I've seen now in, in articles on climate change that uh, more and more they're scrapping 1.5 point celsius yeah. and now the new the new number they keep mentioning is two degrees celsius which is a, <laughs> a huge difference because yeah. we're already seeing these crazy effects of climate's breakdown at 1.2 where we're at now almost 1.3 right yeah no and i think it's really important to maintain that 1.5 and we've got to we've got to keep focused on 1.5 because the next number after 1.5 is not two the next number after 1.5 is 1.51 yeah. and then putting in place abatement technologies to bring us down to 1.5, you know, abatement and, and mitigation and, and carbon capture and so on. You know, we, we don't just, we can't just let go of that target. And the difference between 1.5 and 2 is, is you know, it might not, it, you know, it does sound quite a lot to me, but that is like 70 or 80% of reefs being destroyed by coral bleaching and climate change or 100%, you know? I mean, I can't remember what the exact numbers are, but this is what we're talking about. We're talking like all coral reefs wiped out if we go to that two-degree two limit or two-degree average global warming. So, yeah, we've got to try and keep the debate to 1.5 and, and, and not allow it to shift. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it doesn't sound like a lot to most people, but if we go on like this, I read somewhere that Slovenia, which is a country with a proud skiing tradition, my father was a skiing coach, in 2050, the climate is going to be that of southern Spain. Wow. You know, and Europe is warming up twice as fast as the as most of the other continents, mm. which is, I mean, it's beyond and scary. It's just even insane. Also, I mean, an average temperature of two degrees Celsius globally um, adds up to, I mean, I, again, I don't know the exact figures, but we're talking like 10 degrees at the poles, you know, uh, 
on average, you know, hotter, hotter temperatures. So vast, vast changes there. And I think really what I always think of when I think of these slight, you know, what seeming seems to be a slight increase in global temperatures, you've got to look at countries like South Sudan, you know, countries that are really dry, really hot, people are really poor, they are barely hanging on under current circumstances. If the summer is getting up to 47 at the moment there, if the summer starts going up to 49, 50, it just becomes unlivable. Like that becomes a critical point at which people cannot survive those temperatures living outside as they do without air conditioning or whatever and insufficient water. So then you start to get massive migration, you know, into, into other places. And that's when, you know, things mm. really start to go a bit crazy from a global perspective. Yeah, I'm in Japan right now, uh, where I spent my summer, and the heat waves were just brutal. I spent the entire summer indoors. Mm. It's it's not how I wanted to spend my time. The summers are always hot here, but this year it's extremely hot. And mm. I keep getting warnings from the government on my cell phone every day, you know, stay indoors, stay indoors, stay indoors. And when you go out just to the nearest store for five minutes, usually it was 37, 38 degrees, but Google said feels like 43. <laughs> and you've... You, I mean, this heat is unbearable already at, at 37 degrees. I've never experienced anything like this before. Oh, yeah. Look, it's it, well, see, very interestingly in Australia, because we've had we've got we've affected by these big global cycles of temperatures. So we've actually had in the south of Australia anyway, three years of cooler wet weather, which is, you know, we have these cycles that happen every, you know, every so often. So as you mentioned, a couple of years ago, we're at the end of a long dry cycle where we're having temperatures, you know, in the high, in the mid mid 40s, even in southern Australia, like Melbourne. And then, of course, those massive wildfires that just burnt, you know, vast areas of forest, killed something like 10 billion animals, they estimated, and would have wiped out, you know, some very fragile ecosystems that would just never come back. They're gone. So then we've had these sort of this cycle of relatively wet weather, which has been great, but now we're heading into that dry cycle again. And I think a lot of people are very nervous because we think, well, you know, it, those dry cycles were bad enough pre kind of big effects of climate change. The idea of heading to one of these sort of nine year droughts where we end up with, you know, those very high temperatures, very little rain over a long period of time in a climate change environment. I think a lot of people are extremely nervous about what that will mean for us. I, I mean, I think everyone's nervous about what climate change is going to mean for us. And, you know, we just we, we don't really know what we're getting into. You know, it's volatile volatile and um, weather activity. Mm. If we leave governments on the side, what about people's attitudes? Would you say that they're slowly changing or ch changing fast? I mean, there were some minor local successes. Yesterday, I think Ecuador voted at the referendum to stop and, and most of the people voted for this motion to stop all new drilling for new oil in the Amazon. I know mm. the European Parliament uh, when was it a month ago accepted uh, a bunch of laws for the conservation of nature switzerland had a referendum as well along those lines would you say that when people are giving the chance they are aware of the severity of the climate crisis yeah I, look i think i think um by and large we are seeing increased awareness and we are seeing a lot of you know po positive attitudes towards change what worries me though is that you know for example just today I was reading Twitter X. Oh yes. Yeah, there was a post about you know something I thought was really you know positive about climate change. It was saying you know look at the fires that are currently taking place. I can't remember which country it was. It was just something happening today. I think it was in Canada actually. It was fires fires again in Canada, and um, 
And then, you know, of course, you you, you click on and read the, the responses. Yeah. And some of the top responses are, you know, I don't even want to repeat them, but they are climate deniers and they are conspiracy people. And you've just got to, you know, these people are out there and they vote. And this is the problem that, you know, there's a lot of Trump supporters out there um, and more than you think probably. So, yes, I think there has been a lot of um, progress in people's attitudes, but there's also been probably maybe even some backsliding in, carbon, in you know, climate change becoming, what would you call it, synonymous for them with the evil left-wing, you know, liberal, smaller liberal, you know, the enemy basically. It's become the enemy for some people. And, and this is really unfortunate that it's become so politicised and that science itself has... <laughs> Failed to convince some people of of you know that that it is telling the truth. People think that science you know is also a conspiracy because they don't understand it. And you know, I, I, so I think we sort of it's a matter of taking two steps forward, one step back. I think we are making progress, but we've got a lot of people to bring with us that don't want to come. And um, yeah, politicians are in that position where they need to sort of balance out these different parts of the population and uh, and make decisions that you know are acceptable to the broad majority. And hopefully that's going to change. Maybe it's generational change. Maybe it's, you know, socioeconomic change. Maybe it's education. Hopefully we're moving in the right direction. That's all I can say. Yeah, Twitter is just a cesspool. It's it's depressing to go on there. Uh, I follow a lot of climate scientists and under every post that they make, like you said, top comments are always like, they're politicizing the weather. Yeah. Like, what does that even mean? And then the, this person who wrote that looks in his backyard and the forest is literally burning around him. A lot of Canadians like it's oh, it's arson. You know, Australia, I, I've, I've read the same. It's just like really 400 arsonists at the same time working like a group of ninjas to just you well, know, I mean, create this massive about, conspiracy. What's come on? I, know, I saw from this uh, Twitter article I, I just read was that the climate people were the arsonists because it's supporting their claim that climate change is happening, you know? It's like, well, that's pretty convoluted logic, right? I mean, we're burning down our forests that we find so precious just to prove our point. Yeah, I heard that one before when Bolsonaro was president of Brazil and there were these massive wildfires happening in the Amazon and he said Leonardo DiCaprio is to blame because uh, he's supporting a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, environmentalist organizations, and they were the arsonists to prove, to right. prove his point. Okay. That so this isn't a new happening. theory. This is a, an old theory that just gets pulled <laughs> it's out. It's quite every complicated. Time yeah. Uh, yeah. Staying with Twitter just a second longer. Yesterday, Peter Kalmus, the notable climate scientist and activist, wrote on his Twitter: "It's heartbreaking being a climate scientist. Climate anxiety is real." How do you keep your spirits up? I mean, I I think I don't always. It's always a matter of sort of sometimes the last thing you read. If you read something positive, you're feeling positive for a while. And if you read something negative, you might feel negative for a while. In general, though, I, I have faith that humanity can address issues when they come up. And, you know, when I was sort of 17 and I was, you know, thinking about the issues of the world and I was quite a you know serious 17 year old as, as many of us are when we're you know becoming aware of world issues a friend said to me an older friend so a friend of the family said that he got some advice when he was a child going through a similar thing and this person said to him there has always been trouble and he took that on board to be like okay 
you know, the current trouble in his generation might have been nuclear war or, you know, and it's still an issue for all of us. And I think it's really useful to remember that. Like there, there's never been a time in human history where we've been completely free of, of major, major troubles, but we've overcome them. And this one does seem worse than the rest, right? I mean, the fate of the planet is at stake and, you know, the, the species. But, you know, life will go on. Uh, whether that includes humans is probably, you know, the, the thing in question at the moment. But there has been trouble and humans have been able to respond to it. And, you know, we saw from the COVID response, we saw from the, you know, uh, energy crisis response, the governments, you know, they have the money and they have the ability to act quickly and they have the power to, to you know, to step in when there's a crisis. And I think, I don't know what it's going to take, but at some point governments globally are going to act and do something to, you know, avoid this climate crisis. I just don't know when that's going to happen and what it's going to take and how much we're going to lose in terms of, you know, ecosystems and environments and loss of life and so on to get to that point. But I do feel confident that, you know, we can we can solve this and we've got the technologies available now. We it's can, but cool. will we? Will we? Ah, uh, yeah, that's the big <laughs> question. I really don't know. I'm I mean, sorry, I think it's yeah. a knife edge. I honestly think it's a knife edge. Okay. I think I can see, you know, two futures. One is where we don't solve this and, you know, we suffer vast, you know, almost sort of apocalyptic type consequences, which people think is extreme. But, you know, many climate scientists really see that we're heading for, you know, major problems on a you know, species level scale. Um, but I can also see like a possible really bright future. I mean, imagine a situation where we improve renewable energy. It's getting cheaper and cheaper by the day. We improve it to the point where we have unlimited, you know, renewable energy from, you know, from the sun and from, from wind and so on. If you're in a situation where you've got unlimited cheap energy, you can do all sorts of things. You can desalinate water as much as you like. You can, you know, concentrate all your food production in, in deserts that are currently mm. productive. You could have, you know, rewilding of places, you know, if we could grow meat and so on in much more concentrated or even synthetic type situations then we'd be able to liberate vast areas of the planet for reforestation and for rewilding. And, you know, it's almost a utopian type future that is within sight. I mean, it's not with our existing technology, we're not far off. It's just a matter of choice, you know, right. people to make these choices. Last thing before I let you go, what do you think of carbon capture? It seems that a lot of governments are putting their hopes up in some sort of a technological solution, but a lot of climate scientists are just calling it more greenwashing because the technology is not really scalable, at least not yet. And, you know, so they can just keep pumping more money into fossil fuel at the same time. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think your assessment's spot on. It's um, carbon capture and storage is, is an unproven technology. Um, it's always that technology that holds lots of promise that's just around the corner but is never reached. In Australia, we've got a big gas field, I think it's called the Gorgon gas field, that was only approved because it would sequester the carbon it created um, in, in production. And I think only about a third of the carbon that was meant to be captured has actually been captured. And you see this all around the world, you know, these big CCS projects are just failing to deliver. They're extremely expensive. So governments essentially are so pumping subsidies into um, this type of technology when the abatement potential is is really unproven and is a really expensive way to reduce you know carbon emissions. 
So instead, you know, if governments put their money into sort of clean renewable energy generation, it's just a, a much better and more guaranteed way of reducing emissions. So, yeah, look, I think carbon capture and storage is, unfortunately, I would be saying that we should not be putting any more money into it. We should, we've got other mechanisms that are much more effective to reduce carbon emissions. Tara, thank you so much. This was a very sobering conversation, but a much needed one. Where can people find the report? Uh, yeah, so if you go to the uh, IISD website and you look for, and you even Google fanning the flames, G20 provides record support for fossil fuels. That is the name of the report and it is released on 23rd of August. And you can also Google my name, so Tara Lan and uh, fossil fuel subsidies and my publications will come up. Awesome. Do you have any social media that you'd like to share where uh, people yes. can follow your work? Uh, yeah, so just you can follow um, IISD on Twitter okay. um, or you can follow me, just Tara Lan. Uh, my Twitter handle is just Tara Lan. Are word. you still uh, are you fighting the good fight on Twitter or are you just uh, passively observing what's going on? No, to be honest. I, what do you I, think I, of social media activism? Look, I think you're just generally preaching to the converted, you know. So, right, right. And then, and then, of course, being attacked by the people who aren't converted. Yeah, I had a nasty experience where I was, you know, tried to increase my, my tweeting and tried to be a bit more active on social media. And then I had someone kind of attack me. And I, I can't ignore it. I don't find I'm not comfortable being attacked. And so I, uh, I, I tend to leave it to the organization to promote our work and not sort of be a, a keyboard warrior myself. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Great. Thanks, Nazar. All righty. First of all, just a massive, massive thank you to my patrons, aka producers, Taichi, Veronica, Mila, and Carmen. You absolute legends are the reason why this podcast will keep going. For the rest of you, if you enjoyed listening to the what we back in the Slavlands call the program, uh, please do consider following on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, subscribing on YouTube, and of course, becoming a patron on Patreon. Thanks.